happened the same thing. You know, you go to the bathroom at home, and then the first, you can guarantee, first five seconds, doo, 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 on the door. Dad, I'm busting. Can you get out? Like, I just got in here. And, uh, and uh, it's, uh, I know they're not busting because I've seen them play Lego for the last hour. And they're fine. They're not busting. They're playing Lego. But they have this real ability to over-exaggerate their needs. And it's the same thing. They use a similar thing when they, when they want uh, Katie or I to buy something for them. Our ki- one of our kids has this real need of, uh, real, sorry, gift of over-exaggerating their need. Example, this other day we were chatting and they said to me, um, Dad, I need an iPhone. <laughs> I, said, you, I said, sorry, what? You need what? And they said, I need an iPhone. And I'm like, what, to call all your other friends who don't have iPhones? Like, what are you going to do with that? And they're like, no, nobody calls. They said, I just want to play games and use it for apps. And we often hear this language around my house, of, I need and it's this over-exaggeration. It's often communicated around a, a, a toy that they have or, a, or some, an object they want. And this toy, they think, will, will, will meet this deep need that they have. They can't survive. They don't have this. Well, what you would say is your deepest need. What, what could you not survive without? Could you articulate it? Do you know what it is? Has it been met yet? What and where are you looking to find that need met and satisfied? I think these are all important questions that we need to think about. As I think almost more than ever, we are a people that are searching for answers and for solutions to these desires and these needs that we have. And this, this, this search for this itch that we have seems to be getting more and more desperate. We turn, to all different, uh, we turn to all different vices to try and fill these needs that are often sometimes good and good things and sometimes quite destructive things. But deep down we know that they won't last or suffice and at best they distract us or entertain us for a while. But ultimately they don't fulfill that deep longing that we all feel. Today we look at the story that Rob just read for us in uh, John chapter 5. We're working working our way through. We're in John 5. We read the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And this story really is about Jesus coming and showing this man his deepest need. And through this story, I believe God will show us our deepest need. In this story, we, we, Jesus is revealed as the one who has all authority to show this need, but not just to show it, but to show us that how he can satisfy it as well. He identifies it and satisfies it. And my hope today, my prayer is today that you recognize what your deepest need is and you see that that need is fulfilled only in Jesus. That's my hope as we look at John 5 together. Let's look at this, John 5. We're going to move through sort of three movements. There's three movements to this story. First is Jesus proving who he is by healing the man performs a sign. Second movement, Jesus interprets that sign by making a claim about who he is. And the third movement is Jesus affirming his claim by calling on these witnesses. He'll point to outside himself. Having a great time in the back there. I wish, you're all thinking, I wish I was out there, right? No, you're with me, so listen to the sermon. It's going to be great, right? Stick with me here. We can have balloons later on. It's okay. Hope they stop soon, though. Um... <laughs> Oh, come on. Anyway, let's go. Uh, now, remember that the book of John is two halves, right? We've got two halves, book of John. If you were here week one, 
two halves. Does anyone remember, I'm going to give a crap participation here, anyone remember what the first half of the book of John was called? It's called the book, there's two halves, the book of something, the book of something. What's the first half called, the book of? Yeah, say it, signs, confidence, well done, signs, well done. It's like, signs. Yeah, it's signs, right? Well done, the book of signs, right? The book of signs, first 12 chapters, book of signs. Um, Okay, a bit of a harder one. How many miracles did Jesus perform in the first uh, 12 chapters? How many? Under 10. Eight. Close. It's seven. This guy is seven. It's always the Bible. Heavenly number. Seven. Right? Seven. Seven signs. We've had, we've had uh, two so far. This is the third. The point of these signs really is to reveal who Jesus is. He does miracles to show who he is. To show who he is. But it's also really important to remember the purpose of why John writes his gospel. Does anyone remember John 20, 31? Anyone remember that so far? I'm going to have a go at this. But these things are written. Oh, it's on behind me. There you go. Thanks, Ben. Good one, man. Um, uh, but these things are written so you may put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And if you have faith in him, you will have true life. The idea is Jesus is saying, the whole purpose John is saying is that you may see who Jesus is clearly so that you may have life. And it's so important as we go to these chapters that we remember this, this context of the whole entire book. It's about seeing who Jesus is and having his life in his name. We're going to see this in chapter 5. Okay, First movement, sentences 1 to 16. Jesus proving who he is by performing a sign. Let me read to you the first just three sentences. After this, so Jesus has just been in Samaria, seen the Samaritan woman. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Beth- Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So, Jesus has just been in Samaria, and the Samaritan woman has just believed uh, in followed Jesus. But not just the woman, the ho- a bunch of people have come to know and follow Jesus in this area without Jesus performing any signs or any miracles. It's by preaching who he is. So he heads up, from, uh, from Jer- uh, heads up to Jerusalem. We read that he goes to, into Jerusalem, and then he's there. He goes to a pool called Bethesda. Now, a bit of Jewish history for you, okay? This pool, this pool of Bethesda, firstly, actually is still there today. You can go and visit it if you wanted to, which is pretty cool. Historical place, still there today in Jerusalem. Um, But also, the name Bethesda means, in Aramaic, house of mercy. It's so timely, this is where it happens. House of mercy. That's where it goes to. And there's belief around, the belief during Jesus' time around this pool was this. But it was a pool of healing qualities. Uh, the water would move around in this pool, probably done by a natural spring that fed the pool with water. And the belief was, though, not that it was a natural spring, that the water was moved around by angels that came down and stirred the waters up. And because the angels were stirring the waters up, that it could bring heal, healing to people. That was the idea behind it. So lots of the sick and those in need of healing would come to this pool thinking that this water would heal them. And that's why John says there's a multitude of them there. And they wanted healing. And they're in desperate need. And my guess is this pool did nothing for them. Nothing's quite sad. It's the the needy and the sick hoping 
desperately hoping this water would heal them. Now, John doesn't give a reason why uh, Jesus visits this pool. And he's about to do a miracle. It's his purpose to do miracles to show who he is. And I think this is cool if you think about this for a second, that Jesus didn't have to go to this pool. He didn't have to go here. He could have done another miracle. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have jumped up in the air and done six backflips. We could have done anything, right? Any miracle he wanted to. But he chose to go here to, because he has a heart for, and compassion for the marginalized and those in need, need, needing, uh, need of healing. He does not push them aside like the most of society does. He goes to them, finds them, and doesn't forget them, but loves them, goes out of his way to show grace and care and love. And I think we need to learn from this. That we should do the same, just like Jesus did. Look what happens next in the story, five to nine. You keep going. One man who was there had been in Billy for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and, when I'm, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Jesus sees a man, he goes to the pool, there's a multitude there. He sees one man, and he knows he's suffering. Jesus knows. John said he knew. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years. That's my entire life. 38 years. Can you imagine that? And it's not just the physical hardship that was there. During this time, there were no social services. There was no support, no help. Most people who were paralyzed would have made a living by begging. They were in isolation from relationships, being on the out on the margin, being looked down upon. That's this man's story. He has suffered for 38 years. And Jesus sees him. I'm sure you picked up. He asks him a really weird question. Do you want to be healed? And you think, Jesus, of course he does. Like, no, duh, of course, right? Why else is he at the pool, Jesus? What's Jesus getting at here? Is in John, you know, there, there are layers upon layer upon layer. What's Jesus getting at here? This, this question is going to be key to the whole passage. Do you want to be healed? The real question is, healed of what? Healed of what? Let's keep going. Keep that question in your mind. A man responds to Jesus' question about healing, and, and in quite a strange way. He says, Sir, I've no one to put me in the pool, and when the water's stirred up, I, I can't get in because others push me the other way. Jesus asked him a simple question. He's like, Well, I can't. The man clearly has no idea who, who's talking to him. He has no idea who Jesus is or Jesus' power, and he's thinking the only way for me to be healed is to get in that water. So maybe Jesus can just push me in there or something. But Jesus has compassion on him. And he shows his power and his authority over sickness and disease. And he heals a man physically. And he shows the man that it's not the water he should put his faith in. He should put his faith in the Son of God. The one with power and authority. And I love what Jesus does here. And I think this is the real taste of the kingdom of heaven invading earth. It's Jesus who is going to bring one day ultimate end to suffering and sickness and death and disease. It's a foretaste of revelation of the end times, of eternity, of heaven. And we see here with Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived and is breaking in. Jesus tells the man to get up and take his bed and walk. And what happens? Immediately, bam, straight away, full healing. 
full healing at the word of God. Full healing. This is the power and authority of Jesus. Can you imagine seeing this or experiencing this? With just a few words from Jesus' mouth. Bones healed, muscles healed, ligaments come back together again. Bam, in an instant. Just at the words of Jesus. Who is this guy that the human body listens and heals at his word? That is power. Just after Jesus heals, John comments at the end of sentence 8. A really short sentence there. He says, and it was the Sabbath. That's all he says, and it was the Sabbath. Now, some more Jewish history. It's important to have context here so we can understand what's going on. The Sabbath was something that was instituted by God through a man named Moses. Moses, the Old Testament uh, figure. Way back when people had just come out of slavery in Egypt, uh, think Prince of Egypt, um, thousands of years earlier, God had instituted a thing called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was where God said to his people, I want you to set aside one whole day of the week. One whole day of the week. Don't do anything else on this day, but just to remember me, be thankful for what I have done for you. Set it aside for me and to be thankful. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. God's purposes. But as time went on, the Jewish people, they added more laws and rules around the Sabbath day. And they lost sight of what the Sabbath was about. It became about rules for them and conditions and more about what you could and couldn't do and lost the heart and the purpose of the Sabbath. So for a Jewish person in Jesus' day, it was more important about what you could and couldn't do rather than actually thanking God and, and resting and uh, worshipping Him. So back to the story, that's the context of John tells us the Sabbath. Sentence, let's have a look at sentence uh, 9 to 13. Now the day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had just been healed, he's just been healed from 38 years of, of, of being paralyzed, they say to him, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take, your bed up on, uh, take, uh, take up your bed. But he answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now the Jews aren't happy at all. The man is carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And according to their rules, you can't do that. That's work. Carrying your bed after you've just been healed, wrong. Can't do it. That's work. Sorry. This is crazy, right? This man has been healed. They should be celebrating and praising God that the guy has been healed by God himself, but instead they're so consumed with their laws and their rules, they're saying, no, nope, don't do that. That's wrong. And it shows where their heart is at. For them, it's about rules and what is right and what is wrong and breaking the Sabbath rather than rejoicing in that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. But the man too, he's just been healed. And he's scared of these Jewish people. And he said, oh, no, 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 it's not my fault. It's, it's, it's that guy, that guy who healed me. Even though Jesus has just healed the guy, he's pointing this finger straight back at him, shifting the blame to Jesus. It seems like this man has been healed physically, but there is more healing that needs to take place in his heart. What's also crazy is that this man doesn't even know who Jesus is. doesn't even know who's healed him. But Jesus fixes that up. Look at sentences 14 to 16 with me. It says this. After what Jesus found in him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the 
Sabbath. Jesus purposely goes back and he finds the guy. And he lovingly warns him. And he tells him what's really going on. This is not a warning. Don't, please don't read this as if Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, I'll make you paralyzed again. He's not saying that. That's not what he's doing, right? He's not doing that. He says something far worse. This guy experienced the worst that he could in, in physical ailment. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's worse than that. Jesus is calling him to respond by grace to be truly healed. And if he doesn't, he's still in his sin and he's still facing the judgment of God. Jesus is talking about the bigger picture at play here. It's not just about your physical, uh, physical strength. It's about who you are and where you stand with the living God. And you need to know this, he's saying to this man. And the question he's asked this man is, do you know your deepest need? Do you know that it's not just about the outward and the physical? Do you want to be truly healed? Is the question Jesus asked. Does he know what Jesus is offering him? His deepest needs satisfied. It seems like this man and the Jews had no idea who Jesus was, even though he was trying to show himself through this miracle. They don't understand who Jesus is, and they've mistaken him clearly for his troublemaker. He's breaking their rules. They've mistaken him. A couple of months ago, I was um, on Darling Street down here, and Katie was driving, and uh, we drove past uh, one of the local cafes that I hang out at a lot at, Piccolo's, and, um, and I looked into the, I just, we were driving past, I looked in, and I looked in the window, and I saw my brother sitting at a table there, which is not unusual. He works around the area, and he often, uh, he finishes early, he'll come and see me, and we'll just have a coffee together and have a chat, and just say hi. And so I thought, you know, I said to Katie, pull the car over, I'll just go and jump in and see Ant. And uh, so we, uh, we, she pulled over and I jumped out and she kept driving and I had my bag on my back and I walked through the first door on the right of the tables. He was sitting in the far corner, head down, cap on, and uh, just looking at his phone or something. So I moved past everyone and I sat right in next to him, right on the bench. We're good buddies. So I had put my arm around him, sat down and uh, put my bag down. And then uh, he lifted his head up and it was at that point I realized it wasn't my brother. And the guy just looked at me in shock, didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed. I said something like, uh, uh, so I thought you were someone else. And then just like, as fast as I could, got up and out of there. But the whole Piccolo staff saw it and laughing at me. So it was the funniest thing in the world that I just tried to put my arm around someone I didn't know. I was embarrassed. He was embarrassed. It was a disaster. Got it totally wrong. Totally wrong. Totally misunderstood who the guy was at the table. Thought it was someone that it wasn't. But really, no big deal. My pride was hurt. Um, but no big issue. This man, who had been paralyzed and then healed, had no idea who Jesus was. And no idea that what he was offering him. He fully misunderstood Jesus. And just like the Jews who want to try and persecute him but for doing work on the Sabbath. They let their own desires and rules get in the way of seeing who Jesus really was and acknowledging him. And they misunderstood who Jesus is and what he was bringing and has huge consequences for them and the question John is asking us again and again and again through this book is do you see Jesus for who he is this is the question whether you know Jesus or not the question he's going to ask you again and again he asks you here today is do you know who Jesus is or have you mistaken him for someone for someone he's not or do you just see him through one lens? I just see him as this. I just see him as that. Do you see him for who he, who he fully is? 
Lord, Savior, King, Judge, Brother, Redeemer, Mediator. Do you see him fully for who he is? And do you relate to him in light of who he is? That's who Jesus is. And that's who John wants to show us who he is. I don't keep moving. That was the first movement. Jesus performs a sign to show us who he is. Secondly, he works on from this. And he interprets this sign that he does. And he uses it as a platform to make a huge claim about himself. Because then the discourse goes on. The Jews knew Jesus was working on the Sabbath. And they wanted to get him. Jesus knows this. And he's like, okay, I'm going to come at you. And he goes at them with his anger. Look at 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is, at, is working until now. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this big issue of Jesus breaking the Sabbath here. In their opinion, he's working by healing someone, encouraging others to work by carrying their beds. But there's more going on here because now Jesus is claiming something more. He, thinks, he said, you think that's bad? I'm going to tell you more about myself. He says to the accusation, my father is working until now and I'm now working. Jesus is claiming here to be God, to be divine. He's equal with God. He's defending his healing on the Sabbath by claiming his work is like his father's work. Sabbath's about God, Sabbath's about Jesus. Same. He calls God his Father, and just like his Father is at work right now sustaining the world, the Son is at work right now bringing the kingdom of God to heaven, bringing the kingdom of God down. That's what Jesus is claiming, that his work of healing, which leads to the breach of their rules, was a work of mercy which imitated the, Sabbath, the, the gracious work of God. And Jesus here is claiming a unique uh, identity with the Father, and a fact that is not lost on his hearers, so much so they say, we're going to kill him. And they do. They kill him. Eventually on the cross. But here now, Jesus is just getting warmed up. He's no longer hiding anymore. He's coming out swinging. He's ready for this. Look at sentences 19 and 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, uh, but only what, his father, what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will will he show him so that you may marvel? Jesus is not claiming to be a rival to God, but rather there's this unique uh, relationship between the Father and the Son and submission between the Son to the Father. So the Son can do nothing apart, uh, apart from God, the Father. And this is the Trinity at work. God in three persons. Jesus is God the Son. And his relationship with God the Father is around this Trinity relationship that they've got. Imitating the Father... And it's all found in this mutual love they have. The Jews thought this healing was a big deal and his work on the Sabbath was a big deal. Jesus says, it's sort of an it, there's more to come. That you may marvel. And Jesus lays it out for them. Let me, let me, let me roll to this. So you've got to pay attention and watch this. verse is going to come up here. Firstly, Jesus says, you think that's a big deal? I'm going to raise the dead. Senate 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 10 to 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 10 to 28, 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, who are dead, 
will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying, you think that's a big deal? I give life. And I raise the dead. I am the life giver. And he says he's already doing it. Senate 24, he's already giving life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's not coming to judgment. It passes from death to life. Jesus is saying, I'm already doing it. Already doing it. That miracle is nothing. I give life. And he says, when he, when he finally returns, he'll raise all to, all to life and judge. And those who responded to him will, will be raised to life. But right now, it's already started. It's already breaking in. Jesus is saying, I'm the life giver. But the second claim that he makes is that he'll be the judge of all people at the end of the age. Senate 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Senate 27, and he has given him authority to execute, execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Senate 29 and 30, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is the life giver, and he is the judge who will judge every human being. Every human being, will, every knee will bow before him on that final and ultimate day and he'll give life and he will judge. That is who Jesus is. The divine, life-giving judge. Jesus performs a sign. He interprets it by making a claim that he is the divine, life-giving judge. I wonder if you've met anyone before who uh, has made a claim about themselves and you think, that's not true. No way. I was at a conference just last weekend up on the Gold Coast on Friday and Saturday and I was hanging out with, um, I brought Cam line with me. We had a great time together. Um, uh, the speakers were amazing. The singing was great. Cam and I ate, a little, ate some grilled together, played Monopoly deal. It was, a, it was a nice time. We went on a double-decker bus. I act like a child because I've never been on a double-decker bus at the front before. Cam was embarrassed. But it, it was really nice. It was really nice. That was part of the eldership assessment. Anyway, yeah, good, right? Got it. Um, anyway, at the, one, at the end of one of these sessions at this conference, probably about... 400 people there in this church and the MC's at the front and the MC says um, something like uh, uh, final session, uh, I mean uh, we've got one more session tomorrow morning, it's Saturday night thanks so much for being here, uh, we'll be here tomorrow mo- morning, God willing God willing that Jesus doesn't return that's all he said, at that point I heard a lady yell out, I'm Jesus I'm here and like, seriously this is legit and then everyone, at first, everyone tried to ignore it, like, just look away, like, just don't, don't engage with that. She kept going. I'm Jesus. I've arrived on the Gold Coast. I'm here. And kept saying it again and again. And, like, everyone's got that embarrassed, like, oh, what do we do, right? The MC's trying to talk over her with a microphone. He can't. She's yelling, right? She's going at it. He has to stop and say, sorry? <laughs> like, engage with her. And she said, Jesus arrived. I'm here. I'm here. And uh, to which she replied, no, you're not. And then tried to keep going. But she was still going at it. Like she kept pushing. And eventually he had to say to her, like, uh, you're not. And I rebuke you in Jesus' name and get her out of here. And it was, it was a weird time. Everyone felt very awkward afterwards. It was weird. But, uh, but clearly she, she wasn't Jesus. But she had made this claim about being Jesus. If, Jesus. if it was Jesus, then the world would have stopped and judgment. But it's not. We're still going. So she, she can't be Jesus. But she made this huge claim about being the Son of Man. 
Uh, and if you make a claim like that, then you've got to back it up. You've got to have some witnesses or some evidence to show that you are who you say you are, which is what, what, what this woman didn't do. She's really trying to legitimize your claim. Here we have Jesus. And, he's trying, and John's trying to show us, and he's trying to show us who he is. He's performed a sign, healing the, miracle, uh, healing the man. He's interpreted the sign. And now what he's going to do to give us more evidence is he's going to point to some witnesses outside himself. He's going to point to them and say, they attest to who I am. They affirm who I am. I'm going to show you this really briefly. Three witnesses from the back half of John 5. First witness is John the Baptist, sentence 33 to 35. Uh, you sent to John and he, he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I receive is from man, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning, a burning and shining light, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. If you read John 1 and hear what John says, John attests again and again that Jesus is the Christ. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. He says, uh, I cannot untie his sand because he is so far above me because he is, he is not from here. John again and again talks about Jesus being the King and the Christ who has arrived. That's his first witness. Second witness to Jesus. Sentence 36. For the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' own signs and miracles and wonders attest that he is the Christ, the King. Second witness is that, that his miracles and signs point to who he is. Third witness is, uh, uh, is God himself and God's word. So that's 37 to 40. And the Father who sent me, he has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus points to his third witness, being the scriptures, being God himself. The whole Bible is actually about Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, this King coming to rescue them. These are these three lines of witnesses that he rolls out to show that Jesus is the life-giving judge, the divine one. But I want to finish up by looking at the responses to Jesus. And the responses to uh, who he's claimed to be as a life-giving judge. And you get the Jewish people in this story. Sentence 40, uh, look what Jesus says to him. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's a big statement. You refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Sentence 39 says, that you have to search the Bible, you flick through the Bible, you try and read it and understand it, because in it you think that you'll have eternal life by simply reading it. And he's saying, what you're reading actually points to me. I'm standing in front of you. And you don't realize it. And what you search for, what you hunger for, your deepest need is right here in me. And you're missing it. But they refuse to come to him and have life. They want life because they're searching the scriptures for it. But they don't know where to find it. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. But what stops them? Look at sentence 44. This is really, really interesting point. He says, how can you believe... When you, when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. What stops these, 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 these people from receiving life? Jesus is saying it's your desire for the praise of others. Worrying what others think of you. It's what stops you from having true life in Jesus. Jesus says if you live for the praise of others, if you're consumed by the opinions of others, it will stop you from knowing life in me. 
And it can suffocate your faith so much that you stop believing, continue believing in Jesus. And it's not hard to see why, right? If, if we think about our deepest desire, sorry, if our deepest desire is to be liked, acknowledged, praised by others, then what happens? Our God becomes, or our Savior becomes, other people's opinions. That's what we live for. Because we think that will satisfy us. And we start doing what others think, uh, we start doing what other, we think others want us to do. Living the way we want others, uh, that we, we think that others want us to live. Hoping, just hoping, they will affirm us. They will praise us. They will give us what we think we need. Living for the opinions of others. But this way is not freedom, it's slavery, because you are actually always at the whim and the control of what others think of you, and you're never really sure if you're accepted by them. Because that could turn in a heartbeat, it could change in a day, and it's never enough. It's like a drug that you have that is never enough, and I, and I, I, I can tell you this because I, I suffer from it. It is never enough. And it's not the path to life, it's actually a path to slavery. And more than that, it's a path to death, Jesus says, because it stops, it stops you from actually knowing and, and seeking His glory. Jesus is saying, choose. Which one do you think will satisfy your deepest need? Will it be God who offers you life to the full and uh, eternal life in Christ? Or do you think your deepest need will be fulfilled in living for the praise of others? I think deep down we all long to be affirmed and assured and loved. I think it's a need we have inside of us, what makes us human. And the beauty of God in the gospel and for those who follow Jesus and those who keep on following Jesus is those needs are fully met in Christ. You are so loved by Jesus. You are so loved by God that He sent His Son. And you are, you are a child that is loved forever, that is affirmed, that is assured that you are cared for, you are strengthened, you have a personal living relationship every single day with the creator of the universe. And his opinion of you does not change or waver because it's built upon Christ, not upon you. And we can hold fast that we are loved and affirmed and assured and that heaven is our home and that God knows us and loves us as we are because of the cross. Can I, can I encourage you, because you probably hear me say this a lot, can I encourage you to really ponder this truth? This is a life-giving, freeing truth of the gospel. And I see so many of us who struggle with this area. It's so powerful. If you plumb the depths of it, it is so powerful to give you freedom and to live, to love, and to, and to care for others, not out of what you get from them, but because of the love that you have received in Christ that is assured that is yours in Him. Jesus is the answer to our deepest need, to that need. One writer, John Parker, puts it this way. It says this, When you have tasted the beauty of God and the approval of God in Christ, the addiction to human approval is broken and you are free. I also want to look finally at the response of the man who was healed. Jesus meets the paralyzed man, asks him, Do you want to be healed? This man thinks of his physical need. But Jesus, being the life-giving divine judge, sees his deeper need, his need of life. The man is healed but misses the deeper issue going on at the center of his, of his life. He needs to go from death to life. 
He needs to receive life to the full, coming spiritually alive, having his sins paid for, guilt removed. But it seems like he only sees what's on the surface. He thought that his only need was to walk again. Whereas Jesus said, no, 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 you need to go way deeper than that. And that's what I can offer you. The question is that John asks us is, do we see that need? Do you see your need for eternal life, life to the full? Your need to be made alive? Today in John 5, Jesus, the divine life giver, is telling you what your deepest need is. And not only is he pointing it out, like with Samaritan woman, he's saying, but I'm the answer. I know what you need, and I've got it. That's me. He's offering you life. The question is, do you know this life? Do you know your need? The question is, do you want to be healed? Today can be the day where you can be here, where you can know life. And I want to say, don't be like the paralyzed man who missed, on, missed out on his deepest need, who looked only at the surface. I want to say, look deeper and see your need and see how Jesus is the one you're looking for. I want to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, rejoice. Because your deepest need has been satisfied and you have life to the full. And keep on believing. Keep on looking up, not sideways. And know that Jesus has made you well. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to, we want to thank you so much that, Jesus, you are the divine, life-giving judge who gives us all that we need. We want to pray for every single soul here in this building right now that we would be thinking hard that you, Holy Spirit, will be illuminating truths and convicting us and comforting us seeing that Jesus, that you are all we need. I want to thank you so much for who you are, for the cross, that we have been forgiven, that we are now loved, and this is an offer for all people. Father, we want to pray that as we leave here today, as we set about our weeks, that this truth would not be something that quickly slips away from our mind, but that your love is something we've got our whole entire life on. Know that if we do this, we will not be shaken. So, Lord, please keep working that in our lives. Help us to be people who encourage one another and remind one another of those beautiful truths found in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We give you time to reflect just for a few minutes to whatever God said to you. You might want to pray, write things down, whatever it is. We give you time now to do that, and then we'll sing together and rejoice.